promise you'll enjoy them. So I was digging through some files, some older files, in preparation for this series, and I came across an AP story that I had set aside a long time ago, and it was about this couple. Their names were Rex and Teresa Legale, and they were from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in the story, they said, this couple was getting married, by the way, let me put that out there. In the story, they said they discovered what the secret was to a successful marriage. They knew what the foundation needed to be before they got married, and they had put that foundation in place. Do you know what that foundation was? A 16-page prenuptial agreement. Here's some of the things that were covered in their prenuptial agreement. They had all kinds of rules laid out, trying to figure out everything. They had determined how many times a month they would be intimate, which gasoline they would buy, who did the laundry, who does the yard. Uh, some of the rules, including nothing is to be left on the floor overnight. And another one was they would never allow the fuel gauge in either of their cars to go below a half a tank, and just on and on it went for 16 pages. So what do you think? Is that the foundation for a successful marriage, a 16-page prenuptial agreement? I read about another couple. They, they kind of took a different approach. They were a young couple. They had just been married a couple months, and one morning they found themselves arguing over who should make the coffee? And finally, the wife told the husband, said, look, it's in the Bible that the man is supposed to make the coffee. And the husband was real puzzled. He was like, show me. So she went and got a Bible, and she brought it back, and she said, right there, Hebrews. <laughs> My son's over there going, yeah, don't tell us what you Of course, the uh, the whole like 
conflict resolution. How are we going to settle conflict? And then, of course, everybody comes, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, how many kids we're going to have, one team, a basketball team or whatever. I kind of noticed this week about this little guy because he was kind of like stuck out of the box, kind of across from my desk in the office. He's kind of creepy looking. <laughs> he just really, like if you have a baby that looks like this, you might be in trouble because they're going to be climbing all over everything and, and, and all those kind of things. So we all kind of come into relationships with, with, with this box of hopes and dreams and desires. And we have some idea of what the future is going to look like relationally. And we daydream about the future. And here's the interesting thing. When we daydream about the future, it usually organizes itself around our hopes, dreams, and desires. Let me put it to you another way. When I was not married, single, a young man, all those kind of things, whenever I used to daydream about getting married, I would always dream about the perfect person for me. I would never daydream about being the perfect person for somebody else. It was always about the perfect person for me and that person helping me fulfill my hopes and my dreams and my desires. And so when I found Renee and thought she was the perfect person for me, I came to the altar with her wedding ring and my box. And my box seemed perfectly acceptable to me. I mean, who wouldn't want to live out of my box of hopes, dreams, and desires? And she did the same thing. She bought her box of hopes, dreams, and desires. And to her, they were perfectly logical. They were perfectly acceptable. Here's the problem, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. We bring a box of hopes, dreams, and desires into every relationship. And we hand that box to somebody, and to that person, it doesn't feel like hopes and dreams and desires. It feels like a weight. It feels like an assignment. It feels like homework. It feels like responsibility. It feels like if I'm not able to do this, you're going to be disappointed in me. It feels like expectations. And so we hand off these expectations. And I don't know that it, this is necessarily wrong. I mean, it's just kind of something you do because you've been thinking about it your whole life. Here's what an expectation is. We talked about this last week. A strong belief that something will happen in the future. A strong belief that something will happen in the future. So we're like, we'll get there one of these days, won't we? I know it hasn't been very long, but we'll get there, won't we? And so that's how we approach these kind of things. And this just kind of happens when we exchange boxes. But here's what eventually happens. Eventually, your boxes, your hopes and dreams and desires are going to collide. Or you're finding out that that person can't meet your hopes and dreams and desires. And so then the friction starts. 
And then we start negotiating and we start bargaining. And we get into what I call that debt-debtor relationship or that you owe me. Well, you owe me because this is what husbands do in a relationship. Well, you owe me because this is what wives are supposed to do in a marriage. And so we just kind of negotiate. And if you'll do this, I'll do that. You know, if you want to live that lifestyle, honey, then you're going to have to start saving some money instead of just spending all the time. And we start this whole negotiating, you owe me, we're bargaining back and forth. And it really doesn't do very well. That kind of relationship, and that's what so many relationships, they just become compromised and they become negotiations and bargaining. You owe me, you're supposed to. And the next thing you know, you're back and forth and you're bickering. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say that you owe me $1,000. Let's just say you owe me $1,000. Well, if you come to me and give me $100 as a gift, what am I thinking? Well, that's not a gift. You owe me $1,000. If I come up to you and I say, Dennis, I, I just really appreciate what you're doing around here. Here's a gift of $100. I'm not thinking that's a gift, am I? I'm thinking you owe me $1,000. Where's the rest of it is probably what I'm thinking. And I'm not really probably going to be very gratuitous about it, am I? I'm not going to be very thankful for it because I'm thinking you still owe me more. And that's what happens in so many relationships. It just becomes this, this only kind of thing, this debt-debtor kind of relationship. So how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep legitimate things that we've worked on and thought about our whole life, hopes, dreams, and desires from becoming somebody else's expectations? Before we get into that, first of all, let me talk about what a Christian marriage is not. Of course, we're looking at this from a Christian marriage perspective. A Christian marriage is not a code of conduct. It's not a set of rules. If you're entering the marriage and you have all these rules that you think the other person is going to live by, if you're entering a marriage and you're thinking to yourself, he'll change once we get married, She'll see it my way once we get married. Let me say this. I just, I'm saying this as kind as I possibly know how. If you're thinking that, you are headed for big, big trouble. Marriage is not a bunch of rules. It's not a code of conduct. Great relationships are not built even on specific roles. A great relationship is not you know, built on, a, on, on some kind of barter exchange of a service of, of goods and, and services. A great marriage, which we are talking about today, a Christian marriage in particular, is about submission. It comes down to submission. I mentioned it last week, just kind of at the end of the service, and had some really good feedback in some of our home groups. A Christian marriage, I make this statement, is a competition submission where both parties are running to the back of the line to put the other person first. And that just sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? You know, it's like, I, just, I don't even know how you do that, Pastor. That, that just seems kind of weird. 
and I was talking to, in our home group, one of the guys, he made this point, he was, we were talking about that. He said, you know, as long as you're, uh, as you're bargaining back and forth and you're still kind of trying to see what you can get out of a relationship and you're trying to do some trade-offs and stuff, he says, it's kind of like a contract. And he said, you're never going to move past that as long as you're kind of like bargaining all the time. He said, it's only after you display unconditional love that you're going to move past that. And that was the thing that we talked about last week. Happy couples practice, they do, unconditional love. That was the first thing that we talked about. Unconditional love. I'm just going to revisit just for a moment where we were last week in, in the passage there in John. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's got his guys gathered together. There's 11 of them because Judas has already ran off in an errand. They've just finished the Passover meal. And Jesus says to them, i got a new command for you guys. He said, you know, we started out on this journey three years ago, and there were like 635 commands that you guys had to keep because you're Jewish religious leaders and made up all these rules, like how far you could walk on the Sabbath, whether or not you could light a candle, how much you could cook, what would work, all that kind of stuff. He said, and I boiled it down, and I'm boiling it down again. I did boil it down to two, and today I'm going to boil it down to one. There's just one rule. I'm going to give you a new command. Now, these Jewish boys, this might have bothered them that, that Jesus was going to give them a new command because only God could give new commands. But by this time, they realized that God, that Jesus was God, and he had the right to do that. He said, so I'm going to give you one command. And he says, this is the command I give you. A new command I give you, love one another. To which they may have responded, that's not new. What's new about that? But Jesus knows that yet. He goes on, and this is kind of an epic moment. You know, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he takes all 635 of those commands and he puts them in one. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. That's it, he says. You are to treat people the way I have treated you. And then you know what he could have done? He could have went around that whole room and he said, hey, Matthew, do you remember when we first met? Matthew's like, yeah. Jesus said, yeah. You were a tax collector. You were a cheat. You were a traitor to your people. You were an embarrassment to your family. But I invited you to come follow me. Remember that, Matthew? Peter, do you remember when I invited you? Do you remember that first time we met? But you didn't want to come because Matthew was there? And Matthew was a traitor to your country because he overtaxed people. And you're like, I don't want Matthew in the club. But I extended grace to you and to Matthew. Peter, you remember that, that first time we got together with, with Matthew and all the tax collectors were there? Yeah, I remember that, Jesus. That was the worst day of my life. I hated all those people. They were traitors. Yeah, but I extended grace to you. Yeah, I remember that. Nathaniel, remember the first time I met you? invited you to become part of us and, and, you, and you just dissed my whole town nothing good comes from Nazareth you dissed my people and you dissed my family and my neighbors, my town my stickball team, you dissed us all 
I never held it against you, did I? No. He never did. And he could have went around the whole room doing that. He says, here's the thing, guys. From now on, I want you to treat people the way that I treated you. That's how I want you to treat everybody. The golden rule is to treat people the way you wanted to be treated. It's like Jesus is up in it here and he goes, this is the platinum rule. I want you to treat people the way that I treat you. That's what I want you to do. So just kind of making it simple. When you're not sure what to say or do, just do what Jesus did. So he kind of lays out that new command. Then Paul comes along a little bit later, and Jesus has already kind of laid it out. And then Paul kind of pumps it up. And we get into Ephesians chapter 5, and he, whenever Paul gives a command, it's almost always related back to something that Jesus said in the New Testament. And so he starts off in the early part, and he's talking about relationships. He said, love others the way that God through Christ has loved us. And then he gets down toward the end of the chapter in verse 22 and 21 and following, and he begins to talk about applying that principle, Jesus' command, to relationships. So whenever you read the Apostle Paul, always remember that he is referring back most of the time to a commandment that God has set forth. So he's not making this stuff up. He's applying this new command to these Christians living in Ephesus. And he takes this new command, this love everybody, treat them like I treated you, love them like I loved you. And he goes to verse 22, and he's talking about marriage, and here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. What could be any clearer than that? Let's pray and we'll be discussed. bothers you, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. In fact, I'm sure some of you might even say, you know what? That verse, that attitude, that's why I quit coming to church. That attitude, that verse about women, that is why I don't like Christians. That, that verse is just so archaic. It's just so dumb in the 21st century. Pastor, are you trying to tell me, some of you were thinking this morning, Pastor, are you trying to tell me this is your go-to verse about marriage in the 21st century? Is that what you're saying? I get that. Because a lot of men and a lot of churches have misapplied this. They've misconstrued it. They've made it say things that it doesn't say. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. Because I think it's really important that we have a good understanding of what this really says. I think most of you know that we get our English translations from Greek texts. And there's different compilations of Greek texts that have different names. The Byzantine text, the Alexandrian text, they're all pretty much the same for the most part. And the oldest of those texts are the Alexandrian texts. And if you just happen, maybe somebody in the early service did, they didn't talk, but if you happen to have your Greek New Testament with you and you were to open it up, you would find something interesting in the Greek about this 
translation here about this particular passage. Verse 22 in the original Greek text does not include the word submit. In other words, it reads like this. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb there. The word submit is not there. What's the significance of that? I'll get that. I'll set that up in just a minute. But it's important that you understand some other things about their culture first. In the first century, when Paul made this statement about wives submitting to their husbands, Whereas today we go, what? Huh? That's crazy? They wouldn't have said that. They would have gone, duh. Well, yeah, like, for real? Tell us something we don't know, Paul. We don't have any choice in this matter. This, this is not new information. This, this is something we already know, Paul. It didn't surprise any of the ladies that would have been hearing this, what Paul is saying. No one would have been offended. Because in that culture, the Greek and the Roman culture, the men had all the control. They had this agreement. It was a, a legal kind of thing. It was almost like a deed on, their, on their, uh, their women and their children. It gave them legal jurisdiction. It was called patria postastis. And it was a legal thing that basically it was like a deed on a piece of property, except it had to do with their wives and their children. And they had complete control. Wives and children were just, just kind of like a piece of property. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, they're like, yeah, we know that. Because if we don't, he could have us arrested. He could get rid of us. He could trade us. He could sell us. He could do anything he wants. And there's not going to be any witnesses. Yeah, we totally understand this. So that's one of the things you need to understand as we're looking at this. So why no verb here? It was a very common grammatical thing for the Greeks to put a sentence, or in this case a verse, where they would make a statement that was kind of setting the tone for everything else to make a statement and then the verses or sentences that follow, they would not repeat the verb because they set the tone at the beginning for everything else they're going to say and they felt like it wasn't necessary. And that's exactly what happens here. The verse before has the verb. And that verb sets the tone for everything that follows. So naturally the question is, What's the verse in front of this say? Well, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 21, or you can look at the screen behind you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's Paul again. He's pointing back to Jesus. He's not pointing to the Old Testament. He's not pointing to the Ten Commandments. He's pointing to Jesus' command. He said, you are to submit out of reverence for Christ. Gentlemen in the audience, what he's talking about here is mutual submission. Not just wise, but he's talking to the men too. Mutual submission. He mentions we do this out of reverence. The word reverence here means awe. Okay, that's, that's what it means. It means just this awe that I have for Jesus because what he's done for me. 
eternal life. He's forgiven my sins. I mess up all the time, and he still forgives me. And, and, and he blesses me and gives me resources and gifts and talents. He does all those things, and, and I'm just kind of awe in him, of him. And he wants you to take all of that energy, that awe you have of Jesus, Christ, of Jesus Christ, and I want you to treat other people with love. And it's a mutual thing. That's why I said that, that a Christian marriage is a race and submission to the end of the line to put the other person first. And that's what makes Christian marriages unique. That's what makes Christian marriages amazing. If you get nothing else today, remember mutual submission. And when you do that, then somebody doesn't owe you something. You're doing what you're doing for them, not because they owe you, not because that's what men or women are supposed to do in a marriage. You're doing it because you realize what Jesus did for you, you didn't deserve that, and you treat others the way that Jesus treated you. And I know that can be difficult and challenging, but you basically leverage all your gifts and your talents for your spouse. You see, what Paul did is really brilliant from a communicator's standpoint. He's going to tell them something that's kind of disruptive. They knew about the women part of this, the submitting, but not the men part. That's new ground. So it's brilliant in his part to go to common ground first. Reverence for Christ, submitting to Christ. Yeah, the wise part everybody already knows. That's common ground. And then he brings the new stuff. Submit yourself one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit. I know what some of you wives are thinking this morning. I get this. Not all men are worth submitting to. I know some of you are thinking that. So I did a survey this week. And you know what I found out in my survey? You're right. 100% of men aren't worth submitting to. Every single one. It, it's 100% percent. But Paul's point, ladies, is it's not because they're worth it. If you're moving into a permanent relationship, you place his box of hopes, dreams, and desires before your own. And men, if we're, if, if, if we're loving Christ and practicing, practicing this, love one another like, like Christ loved you, then we're doing the same thing with the ladies and we're putting their box in front of our box. And Paul gets really interesting. What he says next is just shocking to the 21st century. He goes on down. Look at verse 26. Husbands love your wives. Duh. I mean, sure. I'm sure. I'm going I'm to do that. Not in the first century. Not necessarily. Maybe, maybe not. Because in the first century... Men felt like, yeah, my wife has an obligation to love me. Well, why would I have an obligation to love her? She's a piece of property. I don't have any more of an obligation to love her than I love the cow out back. I mean, he might, but he doesn't have to. Paul, where are you going with this? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ. Keeps on going here. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul, are you telling us that we have a responsibility the ladies? Are you inferring somehow, Paul, that there's like equality here? Where are you kind of going with this, Paul? 
simplifies it a little bit further in verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It's almost like he said, look, guys, if you, if you not get the theology here about the church, then surely you'll understand you are responsible for your wife, and you're to love her just like you love herself. And you're to take care of your wife. You're responsible for her. And this is earth-shattering news in the first century for guys. I mean, this is, this is just more than they could even imagine. He's equating men and women. He's putting them on equal footing. The reason they bristled at that back then is because they were putting men, men and women on equal footing. The reason that so many women bristle at this today and they think that this is saying you need to be barefoot and pregnant and you don't need to think, the man will make all the decisions and you just need to follow along. The reason we bristle at that is because we live in this civilization that's all about equality, as if it's flipped from what it was back then. But Paul is saying it's not either or, it's both of you need to be submitting to each other. It's mutual submission. So instead of going and getting mad about it, we realize he's talking to men and to women. Guess who introduced equality into this world? Guess who gave women dignity? Guess who said women are equal to men? Guess who had the authority to say that? Jesus. He was the first one. He was saying that before that was on anybody else's radar. He's the one that said that. He's saying, men, because of the way your Heavenly Father views the women in your life, you are to treat them extraordinarily. You are to treat them with extraordinary value. He's the guy that said they should be equal. This whole idea that's been taught in the church, and I get this because you know, I grew up in churches like that. Man, you know, he's got a cave like her wife over the head kind of idea. And that's a Christian marriage. It's bogus. It's not true. It's not biblically true. Jesus said they're equal. Jesus is teaching this group of guys one day. The, 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 I don't know if he's teaching them. He ends up teaching them. But he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking to these religious leaders who are always trying to trap them. And that's kind of how the conversation starts. And they come to Jesus and they said, hey, can you give us, and they're trying to trap Jesus, can you give us a list of reasons of why a man can divorce a woman? Because there were certain religious leaders that were saying, all a man has to do is say, I divorce you three times and it's done. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. Woman burns toast, I divorce you, I divorce you, marriage is over. Divorce you. you know, she spills the water, she's late to pick up the kids, gets tired of her, whatever it is. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, it's over. And they're saying, now Jesus, is that right? Or what's the list of reasons that the divorce is justified? Jesus said, there's not a list of reasons. He said, I'm not going to give you a list of reasons. This is basically what he says, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, there's no reason. You see, your problem, guys, is basically you think that you're better and you think that you're worth more, and you think that you mean more to God just because you're men, and that's not true. And when you marry her, you become one and go home and treat her as you treat yourself. 
Jesus gave women dignity and worth and value. Extraordinary dignity, worth, and value. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the Easter story is that the resurrection, a woman was the first person to announce that he wasn't in the grave anymore. So what's the big deal? Well, women had no, their testimony wasn't considered valued. They, they couldn't even testify in court. It's almost like Jesus has given women even more value by making sure that they're the ones that first testify about his resurrection. Let me see if I can put Paul's words a little bit simpler. He's saying to us guys, what is life to you? Men, what is life to you? Whatever life is to you, put your life before that. Whatever life is to you, put your wife before that. That's how you get past this. He says, and women, the same principle, whatever is life to you, put your husband before that. And when you do that, then this, this, this box of expectations kind of goes away because you're both trying to make the other person's box of hopes, dreams, and desires come true. So last week I gave you a homework assignment. Your homework assignment was, was twofold. One was figure out what's in your box. That, that was homework assignment number one. And the second part of your homework assignment last week was answer the question, what's in your box? Number two, have you ever taken your box and either purposely or inadvertently handed your hopes, dreams, and desires to somebody else? Have you ever done that? So that was last week's homework assignment. This week's homework assignment is it's a little more dangerous. I'll just put it that way. This week, guys, I want you to sit down with your wife or your significant other, your fiance, somebody that you're pretty serious about, and I want you to ask them, what's in your box? And guys, be prepared. She might faint. She might get mad. We've been married 20 years and you don't know what's in my box yet? That's, that's a possibility. But there's a second part to that homework assignment. Ask her what's in her box, and then stop talking. Stop talking. So if she gets mad or whatever, don't argue. Don't get defensive. Stop talking. And ladies, you need to do the same thing. What's, what's in his box? And when you ask him that question, I know what men are going to say. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Aren't the braids on? <laughs> Do you know why we say that? I'm stereotyping a little bit, obviously. It's because we've never, men don't, we want the relationship to work, but we don't want to work on it. Remember we talked about that last week? A lot of men have never really articulated what's in their box. I mean, they have some ideas swimming around in their head about what they expect. I mean, they do. But they, but they can't really articulate it. 
And yet, we expect the women in our lives to be able to figure it out, even though we can't tell them what it is. Am I right? That goes both ways, obviously. So men, hopefully you did the assignment last week, so when your wife asks you, you'll be able to tell her what's in your box. And once you ask the question, you just stop talking. And you need to leave time for this. This is not something you can do driving from here to Applebee's on, you know, from Lowe's. There's not enough time for that. Don't do it while you're standing in line. We don't want fights. Oh, those people go to Burning Bush and they're standing in line. <laughs> Wait till you have some time to really talk it through. And then I know some of you are thinking, this sounds like an all-in deal. It is. When you ask somebody about their hopes and dreams and desires, you're saying, I'm all in. I am all in for this relationship. And I know some of you are thinking, you don't understand, Pastor. You don't understand about our relationship. See, he's at one end. And I'm at the other end. And there's just this constant tension, and there's this constant tug of war, and if, if I don't keep the pressure on her, there's no telling what she'll do. I mean, she'll spend all of her money if I don't keep the pressure on her. And some of you ladies are thinking the same thing. If I don't keep the pressure on him, you don't, you don't understand what my man will do. I mean, that guy, he'll be at work 24-7 if I don't keep the pressure on him. i got to keep the tension on him. I don't understand how I'm going to mutually submit. How am I going to let go of the rope? I'm not letting go of the rope until he lets go of the rope, or vice versa. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, maybe we'll count to three, and then we'll both let go of the rope at the same time. That's not mutual submission. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about putting the other person race to the back of the line where you're wanting to be last. That just means you just drop it. And you work on fulfilling your hopes and their dreams and their desires. Happy couples love each other unconditionally. That's what they do. That was last week. Happy couples mutually submit to each other and put each other first by dropping the rope. Would you pray with me?